This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. With you no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibbity. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, um, starting off the same way we started off last time, the Bears lost. Justin Fields did get off and, and, and play very well. And I keep having these friends that keep hitting me up talking about you haven't talked about the Lakers in a while. Um, I guess the thing going on with the Lakers, Chris, is that they've won. They might have beaten the Spurs like four times or something like that. And so people are excited, even though they still have a losing record. Um, any sports thoughts coming from you uh, on, on this good day? Well, you know, it was a, a bit discouraging. I had, we had a lot of activity going in the church uh, this week, so I didn't I didn't sit down and watch the game, but I was checking on my phone. And I mean, I checked. Like it was like late in the third quarter, and the Bears were winning. Mm-hmm. And then when I got home, we had lost. So that was, that was that was deeply disappointing. Next season, man, we have to wait for next season. But I will say to Laker Nation, you have a losing record. I think it's going to stay that way. So, and we all know, man. You guys, you know, when you get excited about a two or three game streak, uh, it just says a lot about what you think about your team and and really where you think you're headed. We all know this is going to end fairly soon. We know that age is going to catch up with y'all, all these other things that catch up with you all the time. I'm happy that you guys got your little asterisk tra- championship. I really am. I mean, deep down, uh, you know, winning in a place that nobody else wanted to be, um, that probably in a season that probably shouldn't even have happened anyway. Hey, man, take it and run with it. Uh, but this season it's not going to happen. And uh, you can mark my words uh, <laughs> with that one. Well, folks, uh, you know what it is. As usual, we always want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you also want to be somebody who supports what we're doing, you can go to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash church politics. And one of the partnerships that we have with the Fetzer Institute is our Christian Civic Leadership Academy. And if you go to our website, if you want to learn, you want to run for office, you want to you know, be part of campaigns, things of that, na- that nature, go on our website fill out the application. We're going to get started in April and we would love to have you as a part of that, or at least have you uh, apply uh, for our second cohort. So that should be uh, exciting. So grab your Bibles, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, like a Christian. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal and you shall not Keep yourself, keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until the morning. That is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. Congress passed the Railway Labor Act on May 20th, 1926. 
It was the first collective bargaining legislation passed by Congress. It was intended to keep uh, rail strikes from disrupting our economy. It was important that we were able to move people, to move goods, to move mail by rail. So crucial uh, American transportation networks needed to remain open if at all possible. I mean, it could have if they were closed, it could potentially shut down our entire economy. Right. Or at least hurt it to the point where uh, a lot of other industries would be impacted as well. Now, the act was primarily written by rail union lawyers and created guidelines to regulate labor relations on railroads. It sought to ensure that all options were exhausted before a devastating strike was allowed. Now, this legislation created the National Mediation Board, which had the authority to convene railroad execs and unions to make them come to the table to find solutions. All right. Now, pursuant to this bill, transportation workers also had the right to sue if their employers violated the law. The Railway Labor Act was expanded to include airlines in 1936. Now, I want to say that President uh, uh, Ronald Reagan used it in 1982 to end a rail strike. I think he, he also threatened to use it maybe in 1985. He also and you guys may have heard of this uh got to the point where he fired air traffic controllers in 1981 uh, to, to, to end their strike. Uh, but that was based on a, That was on a different basis. I think that was based on them being federal employees. If I'm not mistaken, if I got that wrong, y'all can let me know. So this has been used in the past. Um, and Chris, the, the, the passage of scripture, I mentioned Leviticus and it, and really, you know, the subject of paying fair rate wages is, is mentioned in the Bible multiple times. Right. Um, I mentioned that scripture, not not because it tells us how every labor dispute needs to be resolved. And so we have to be very careful to read a, a scripture and say, oh, they must resolve it in this way. That's not what we're trying to do here. But I do. I do, Chris, think that it means that we should care about laborers. We should care how they're paid. We should care how they're treated as Christians. Right. We should care about how workers uh, are treated in general. Now, After saying that he intended to be the most pro-union friendly or pro-union or union friendly president uh, uh, that there was, Joe Biden actually just ended a labor dispute. Um, Can you give us the details on what um, Joe Biden signed on Friday and the impact that it'll have on on those unions and just the, the, the conversation about labor in general, Chris? Yeah, for sure. This is, um, man, this has been a, an, an issue that I have followed with, uh, a lot of interest and, and I didn't even realize how, uh, frustrating it had been, but probably the reason it, I, I sort of like connected with it is because when I was running for Congress, you know, in Illinois, in the first congressional district, there are a lot of, uh, rail companies. And so I met a, a bunch of, uh, railway workers during the campaign, uh, folks may not know it, but the, uh, the church that I pastor, uh, we, we, we went through a period of, of tremendous, uh, uh, decline in the size of our congregation because where our building used to be, uh, the railroad company, uh, came in and through collusion with local government, uh, got eminent domain and, and literally cleared out about 600 homes, uh, around the church. 
uh, to build a, a rail yard. Uh, so I, I, I will full disclosure say that I have some, uh, I had some, some emotional triggers already coming into this. Uh, but what essentially the president signed, uh, last week, uh, was the, you know, so-called tentative agreement that essentially gave, uh, these railway workers some pay increases, which were not at the core of their demand. Uh, at the core of their demands, uh, they, they were demanding 15 days of uh, paid sick and family leave uh, per year so that they would be able to take off days, uh, sick days that they didn't have to earn, that they didn't have to necessarily get approved by management 30 days ahead. Just like Chris, how, how many did, did, did they have prior to this legislation? Prior to the legislation, they had zero. Zero paid, zero days paid sick days and, wow. and family days. So they had access to um, to paid time off that they could request. It had to be approved by management 30 days in advance. Uh, but as you and I know, Justin, you don't schedule sick sickness, right? Like you don't schedule sickness. Yeah, my, if my kid days. gets sick on a certain day, I can't take them to the doctor because I didn't have 30 days notice that, right. that it was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And and so this deal gave them some wage increases uh, and added one day uh, of this kind of paid time off. And this is to rail workers. And again, uh, having been, you know, down on these rail lines and talking with uh, these rail workers, this is is very hard and strenuous work. You're talking about folks who uh, have to travel, obviously, with their work uh, and maybe on on the clock, on the job, away from home. You know, days at a time, they'll be away from home on the clock, you know, 16, 17 hours. Uh, so it's a very grueling job in the first place. Uh, and they had no time off. Uh, and so for me, this, you know, if, if there's been anything to convince me, Justin, that we are living in sort of a new gilded age, uh, this is it for me, because in my view, this story uh, is the story of collusion between elites across a wide spectrum of industries really working together to hose working class people uh, and, and really push families uh, down and, and widen that gap between, uh, you know, elites and, and sort of everyday folks. I mean, so you have the rail worker, the rail owners. Right. So the rail industry uh, in 2021 uh, in in aggregate, uh, made about $20 billion in profits. It was record uh, profits, right? Record profits in 2021. Uh, of that $20 billion in profits, they use $18 billion uh, to do uh, stock buybacks, right? Uh, so this is reinvesting the money uh, into the companies. There's a lot of companies are doing this, you know, where virtually every industry now is, uh, is financialized. Uh, so to give you a perspective on what that money means, though, $36 million would pay for the 15 days, the full 15 days of uh, sick and family leave, right? So that's, that's around 2% of the overall uh, profits that the companies made. They can invest 2% and, and actually meet the demand. Uh, now, I, I will say that the reality is uh, in order to actually accommodate the sick time and pay time off logistically, they would have to expand their workforce. They'd have to hire more people, which would cut a little bit more into profits. But it they've been laying, they've been laying in the midst of these stock buybacks and uh, record profits. They've been laying off workers, right? Right. 
And, and that's that's the big idea, right? Is the the question on the table here really is? It, we've been talking about sick days, which are very important, but I think the real question is: Should industry in the richest nation in the world be able to build a business model that is based on uh, sort of understaffing and overworking the limited staff that you have? Because that's that's really why uh, you know these railroad companies are willing to offer you know. Uh, uh, wage increases that the workers haven't even demanded. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, instead of doing these pay time, this pay time off, because I can give this limited workforce a little bit more money uh, and not expand uh, the workforce any, it, it won't cut as much into the profits. But these yeah. these rail owners are, are being incredibly, incredibly greedy. A small investment would have solved this, you know, and and so you, you have this situation. And certainly, you know, as we go down the list of, you know, elites who could have done something didn't do anything. Uh, my, the second group on my list is the the, the so-called pro-family Republicans uh, in in Congress and and in the broader discourse. Um, mm-hmm. I, I pulled this quote from a rail worker uh, to put this in context. Uh, what these folks were demanding, because again, these workers are not demanding. Uh, this this big pay increase. They want these days off. Uh, and th- this this worker, Dave, uh, I'm quoting from him. He says, there's no dignity in missing your kid's birthday. There's no dignity in missing all of the holidays. There's no dignity when you have no pictures to look back on, when your family went on vacation and trips and you weren't there to take pictures with them. People just want to be able to see their kids, you know, make a few more memories, you know. I don't have a whole lot of these. And he's holding up pictures. And then he says this, and this is the part that really grabbed my heart. My kid's grown, but we have a lot of young guys out here who are just starting their their families and just starting to see their kids grow. Let's show some humanity. Um, and, And for me, that's really what this whole thing is about. I mean, folks want to be able to have a day where they sleep in, like you said, take your kid to a doctor's appointment, go on vacation with your family. Like these are the things that folks are trying to do, not, uh, you know, get rich or anything like that. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep going down because one piece I think is really important for us to talk about, Justin, that I don't think has gotten a lot of play in any of the media, uh, that I've seen. And, and that is the actual union bosses themselves, right? So in the labor movement today, there's this growing tension between the folks at the very top of these large labor unions and the actual laborers um, who are working day in, day out in the actual jobs. And and I haven't heard a lot of folks mention the fact that the so-called tentative agreement was an agreement between the White House and the labor bosses. And I mean, the, the tentative agreement wasn't out for 24 full hours before you start having workers on social media you know, saying that that they were not going to vote for this. So it's something that was like it, it was not even within reason. Like it was clearly not what the workers had wanted. And anybody who was listening to workers, talking to workers would have known that this was not going to be something that they that they would support. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what made these uh, union leaders, the, the, the railway uh, uh, act of 1926, like it allows the president to bring uh, management and labor into the room and and force a discussion, but you still have the labor leaders have the capacity to keep those conversations open until something reasonable is on the table, and nothing reasonable was on the table. But these these union leaders 
got up from the table and put this this tentative agreement in front of uh, workers that they knew wasn't going to to be supported. And you have to ask yourself the question, was it just so that they could give their political homie uh, a, an easier go at the midterm elections? Mm-hmm. Um, because certainly if a strike was was hanging over the, the country, a railway strike, I think that would have impacted the midterms. I'm not saying that it would have made it worse for Democrats, but it certainly would have had an impact. And, and I have to ask the question, why would these union leaders actually get up from the table with a tentative agreement that they knew was actually not tenable for for their workers. Um, and then we get to the president, right? I think the, the, the biggest person in this thing is the president. So like you mentioned, Justin, he said that he would be the most pro-union president in history. And I have to give him credit because perhaps he is uh, the most pro-union president in at least modern uh, American history, if you look which, at which isn't saying much, right? Right. You know, I, I, I said that the been the, the that the presidency has been decidedly anti-union. Uh, you know, at least throughout the sort of neoliberal era, aka all of your my lifetime, uh, been the most pre- pro-union president in, in recent memory doesn't qualify. Joe Biden for a lot of accolades any more than being like the tallest kid in first grade qualifies you for the NBA, right? So yeah. we and 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 maybe that's on like pro union people. Maybe we should ask like deeper questions, like what does that necessarily mean? Because that's not a very high bar. Um, but uh, this president and his administration has sided with the the owners the whole way. Uh, the president actually, I, I look back over it. Never once in the whole conversation uh, did the president actually call for the the labor comp- the, the the railroad companies to treat their workers with fairness, with dignity uh, and respect. Um, and is the Railway Labor Act actually empowers the president to force a deal? Uh, but what that means is that there it, it would have followed the same procedural process to actually just demand that the railroad companies take 2% of their $20 billion in profit and give these folks 15 days off. And and that would not have been like an unreasonable thing, uh, in my view. It would have followed the same process, and it it just simply didn't. And so to me, it's it's just a complete uh, disgrace. It's it's extremely frustrating for anybody who was expecting uh, something different from Scranton Joe. Uh, it's just very disappointing. And, and I'm going to go one more institution because the, the, the disgrace is unknown to the vast majority of Americans because one last elite institution, which is media institutions, have absolutely been, I mean, just derelict in their coverage of this issue. They refused to cover the story uh, in its early goings, even though it was uh, at the very early state. Uh, this was the the biggest, most immediate threat to our uh, supply chains, inflation control, infrastructure, public health. I mean, the basic American way of life, as you laid out, uh, was this was the biggest threat because if the railway shut down, all of that stuff was compromised uh, significantly. Never covered it early, uh, and even to this day, as far as I can see, they still haven't painted that full and honest picture uh, that the president could have. As easily as he's forced workers back to work without paid time off, he could have forced the owners uh, to pony up 
$36 million of the $20 billion that they have in profits uh, in order to just treat people with, with, with some basic dignity and respect. And you don't have to be uh, like a super pro-union person to see in this particular case just the, the immense greed uh, and and the tremendous failure of this administration. I mean, this yeah. this is basic stuff. People who so, work at Walgreens have paid sick days. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we would agree. I think that there is a re. You know, the administration has a reason to not want there to be a strike. Right. We talked about what the impact of that will have on the uh, economy, just on everything. Um. But what I hear you saying, and what I I think I agree with is. Yes, the railway, the Railway Labor Act is there. It didn't have to be used this way. It could have very well been used to make to put the onus on the the other side, right? Uh, to be to to put the onus on these folks who are making these these huge profits, and that's not necessarily bad, right? Uh, but there is an opportunity for them to do a little better for their workers, and maybe even have to hire a few. Lord forbid. You might have to have, hire a few more people to make that happen. Uh, it's something that we really have to pay attention to. You hit something else that's really good as far as the dynamic w- when it comes to labor, which is union bosses. I remember, man, it had to be 22,000 and maybe two or one. I was selected to go to the NCAA leadership conference. Um, and my roommate was a kid whose dad was part of a union for a long time. And I was always just, yeah, unions are great. But he was he kind of opened my eyes to somehow to some of the ways that union bosses and somehow some some of the ways that sometimes these unions are ran cannot be is not necessarily good for the workers, can be very tough on the workers and, you know, uh, have standards for them that just are not are not healthy. Um, And so that that kind of helped me understand the broader dynamic is usually not so black and white. There are a lot of different. Uh, dynamics and things that go on that we need to understand. So I, I thought that was important as well. Um, and, and Biden, I mean, where are the where's the progressive left on this? The other thing that we have to talk about is you mentioned the Republicans who are you know so, supposed to be pro family. There were a few Republicans that got to the left of the administration on this, right? So we're talking about Rubio, we're talking about Holly, who said no, this is not acceptable. Um, but let me, I'm asking a whole bunch of questions. Let me back up and ask one one specific question. How did how they set this up hurt rail workers, right? So they instead of putting all this in one bill, they actually had two bills. Can you talk a little bit about the two separate bills and how the second one was pretty much uh, destined for failure? Yeah, it was it was destined for, for failure in the beginning. And then this I didn't have them in my in my rundown, but we also have to look specifically at House Democrats. Uh, and again, I know from the first congressional district, the outgoing uh, member receives a lot of money from railroad companies. And that's probably true throughout the Democratic caucus. Uh, and so in the House, where the, this, this bill had to originate, um, there was some pressure from the unions to, to actually do this the right way. But what they ended up doing was putting two bills forward. One that would have given the workers seven uh, paid sick days. So uh, less than half of what they were demanding, but still a lot more than what they have. Uh, and another bill that just went with the tentative agreement that included only the one day. The problem with that is you know that even if both of these bills 
passed the House of Representatives, the one with the sick days, uh, without actually averting the strike, like if you would not pass, right? The only way you're going to get the sick days uh, is if you paired it with the deal that would avert the strike, which I have to say, as a former uh, labor organizer, this is the purpose of the strike, right? The purpose of the strike is the threat to the disruption of economic activity. And it is it is the part that gives the worker leverage in the conversation. Uh, other than that, the worker does not have leverage. The workers don't want to disrupt economic activity, but they need to have that leverage in order to um, in order to like bring their demands to the table. And so when you decouple the disruption from the workers' demands, it takes away the leverage and it makes it you know, very unlikely that the demands are going to be met. So as soon as Nancy Pelosi put the bills out there separately, uh, the the onus was on anybody in the House of Representatives who actually wanted to stand up for workers to vote down the tentative agreement until it was 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 legislatively paired with the seven days. They didn't do that in the House. They sent both bills separately to the Senate. And as could have been predicted, even with those six Republicans, uh, there were not the 60 votes to avoid the filibuster and actually get the thing uh, to the president's desk. Uh, and, to, and to show again what, in my view, is this collusion, even when the House passed those two bills, the president made a statement that didn't even call on the Senate to pass the, the sick days, right? Like, there was never any real impetus from leadership, not from uh, Joe Biden, not from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, not from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. There was never any real uh, uh, energy behind the idea of standing up for these workers. And, and I mean, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. No, I, I agree, man. And I think when you look at how the railroad folks are working. Look at the these these record breaking profits. Um, look at the stock buybacks. You know, I'm a, I'm a someone who believes that a well a smartly regulated capitalism isn't necessarily unjust. Like I'm not a socialist. I think it can be can do a lot a lot of good. But I also do have a problem with folks who who are like, no, capitalism is the Bible basically recommends capitalism. You say, well, there may be some pieces of capitalism that the Bible kind of talks about working and how you work and how you pay people. But can we really say that it recommends this kind of iteration of capital capitalism that we see coming from these railway folks or how they're treating people? Can we really say that uh, use the Bible to uh, justify stock buybacks? And even if you think that's okay, be very careful, especially when it comes to an economic system and how people can use it and exploit it to say that the Bible recommends that, right? Because uh, people do the same thing with socialism, but to say, no, the Bible is endorses capitalism. What iteration? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like there's there's so many pieces that go into that. It's the people behind it. To say that it just endorses one system or the other, I think is wrong. Now, I personally think that, again, a, a, a well-regulated, smartly regulated capitalism is is the best that we have right now. I mean, we can talk about distributism and all that stuff too, uh, but be very, I, I try to slow people down with that because I see where they're coming from. I see the pieces that they take from the Bible to make that work, but be slow to recommend that, especially when you see what looks like to be greed to me. And I, I certainly don't think the Bible would approve anything that that 
uh, it would incentivize that type of greed or allow yeah. that type of greed. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's that's key, right? Like, there's a, there's a long conversation that can be had about what the Bible says about capitalism versus socialism, distributism, all that stuff. It's a very short conversation when it comes to what the Bible says about greed, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 that's the the primary principle uh, that is at at play here. And you know, so from a from a Christian perspective, we have to look at that. And you know, it's a short conversation about what the Bible says about being honest which this president just was not honest. I mean, you you referenced it in your historical context. Labor actually helped write um, the the Railway Labor Act uh, and and the the kind of the honest trade-off that was made in that legislation was that all we got to do is work hard, get the right person elected, uh, and you know we'll be okay. That's the promise uh, implicit in the law. Uh, and that's the promise that was explicitly made uh, from the president himself when he was running for office. I mean, he he has not kept that promise uh, in this case. Yeah, a, a lot of things worth talking about, you know, uh, conversations that we can go. We went over a little bit on this one, but I think this was an important conversation that people need uh, to, to think a little more deeply about. Uh, again, to say that the Bible it would allow some, you know, you, we talked about the greed. I think there's cautions that the Bible would have for capitalism. I think there's cautions that the Bible would have for socialism or anything else. Be very slow to use it, uh, especially when we see uh, stuff like this happening. So we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend. Christopher Butler. So we'll go from that there that uh rail strike talk to another issue that uh kind of caught me by surprise but I think is is worth talking about even though it might be a little awkward. Um Chris an international team of scientists published alarming research showing that sperm counts had gone down by 50% in the past 50 years. Let me say that again. Sperm counts have gone down by 50% in the past 50 years, and the trend is accelerating. They say it has the potential to threaten mankind's survival. Some are even saying that this issue parallels the climate crisis. Now, I'm sure for the comedians in the audience, we can make a whole lot of jokes about this, but it is serious business. Uh, In Euronews.com, Uh, Two researchers said that while the study didn't explore what the causes of the sperm count drop were, one could point to the role of lifestyles and the man-made chemicals that are ubiquitous in our modern world. They go on to say, after all, much of the food we eat and the everyday products we use are packaged with plastics. And so some people are pointing to plastics for uh, uh, as being at least partially responsible for this issue. From our cosmetics and cleaning products to our microwavable popcorn and takeaway meals, the chemicals from these plastics leach into our food, into our environment, and into our bodies. Now, this sperm count uh, drop is coupled with falling birth rates. A few years back, uh, Pew Research Center uh, reported that U.S. birth rates hit the lowest rate ever recorded in 2011. 
with just 63 births per 1,000 women of childbearing age. Okay. Um, One of my favorite conservative writers, uh, Ross Douthat, has long talked about the problems that the U.S. could face if we get to the point where we have far more retirees than workers paying taxes. I mean, that's just one of the issues you run into with this. Um, That could have some severe impacts on our economy. It could have some severe impacts on our international standing. The list goes on. Right. So, again, Chris, while we couldn't make a joke out of this and I'm sure people could find a, a, a way to do it. This is serious business. What what comes to mind when you when you read this, uh, read this news? Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that, like you said, Ross, doubt that and others have uh, talked about. I mean, it's a it's a basic thing, like the basic responsibility of any society. Uh, if it wants to continue, it's to, repl- it's to actually replace itself. Uh, which is something that is becoming more and more difficult and more and more unlikely uh, as time goes on. Uh, when you when you look at these fertility rates, uh, the other thing that you have to look at long term is that once it drops beneath a, 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 a certain level, it's virtually impossible to reverse. Right. So this is, I mean, this is this is like real, you know, like legitimate existential crisis type stuff. Uh, and there, there are issues to me on the left and the right uh, to, to look at this because you, you could look at uh, fertility rates and uh, a lot of folks uh, on the left don't like to think about fertility rates in terms of the, the implications for a lot of social policy uh, when it comes to redefining, redefining everything from gender to marriage uh, and all that type of stuff. Like there are a ton of things that that the left doesn't want to talk about. Uh, I think in in this case, when you dig into the fact that uh, in this research, it didn't necessarily look at it, but there's there's other research that shows that this uh, the sperm count and and other kind of like impacts on male fertility uh, really have to do with three things, and, and you laid them out. It's it's environment, um, it's it's the chemicals in the foods that we eat. Uh, and it's the sedentary lifestyles. Uh, and I think progress on all of this stuff uh, is being hindered essentially by an unwillingness to interrupt uh, powerful in- industry because those industries have too much influence in our government and our media and uh, our marketplace. And, uh, you know, so you have really issues on, on, on the left and the right that are uh, keeping us from dealing with this issue that that I think should register as, as a very top level issue for, for everybody. Yeah. And that's the sad part. And we just, we've been talking about this over and over again. It's on ongoing theme. Will our policymakers do anything about this report? You talk about existential crisis, you know, crisis. That's what this possibly is. Will they do anything about it? More specifically, when we look at the Food and Drug Administration. I believe they have responsibility for the packaging of our foods and and things of that nature. Are you going to do something about it? And if you don't do something about it, what conclusion do you expect the American people to draw? And this is where, yeah, we can talk bad about people who have conspiracy theories. We know some of those are ridiculous. But when you have something like this happening and no one stands up to do anything about it immediately, no one is kind of like, I don't see a whole bunch of senators coming together and say, no, we got to get a group together to address this ASAP. People start to lose faith in, in the process. Uh, people start to lose faith that their best interest is in the minds of these folks. Because, again, the food industry, the, you know, the, where these plastics are being used, 
These are industries with a lot of money, with a lot of lobbying power. And for some reason, we just don't see. How did we even get to this point where these dangerous chemicals came anywhere near our food? How did we get there? Did, did, did they not force them to do the research or have they not looked at the research that's been out there for a long for, for years? What's going on here and, and, and how do how do we how do we change it? So, again, this is one of those issues that if we care, we've got to stand up and say, hey, we need to do this differently. Again, it's plastics. Uh, one thing that people are pointing to as well is obesity. Um, and so these are these are both health, health issues dealing with food, dealing with what we eat. But it's not just in America. It's not just in the West. It's all over. And I'm hoping somebody has the sense enough to be a true leader and do something about it soon. Chris, anything else? Yeah, I, I think there are huge opportunities on this for the next Congress. I'm not holding my breath for them to uh, to actually take those opportunities. But I mean, if, you, if you imagine if the energy that went into the January 6th uh, commission uh, went into a commission on something around this. And again, I don't think that the two are necessarily mutually exclusive, but you have to ask yourself, is the next Congress going to spend its investigatory uh, powers and energy talking about Hunter Biden laptop and uh, all these other things? Or will any of it be devoted to these serious uh, issues that are uh, that are facing us, like literally facing humanity? Uh, that that right there, Chris, was an excellent segue into the next conversation. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. We got to get out of here in a second because we got to do our Patreon uh, episode and we're going to be talking about third party. So if you want to hear that episode, you got to be a paying uh, uh, subscriber on Patreon and you'll get to hear what's what I think is going to be a very interesting conversation. Well, like I said before, Chris made a a, a pro like that was a, that was a very professional uh, and astute uh, a segue into the next conversation. <laughs> Right. Into this next conversation, which is about partially Hunter Biden's laptop. Conservative groups, as you guys know, have long believed that Twitter has unfair has been unfairly since had been, I should say, unfairly censoring them and really putting its finger on the scales when it comes to political issues, Um, including issues, again, like Hunter Biden's laptop. You might recall that The New York Post was suspended from Twitter 
for reporting on the Hunter on Hunter Biden laptop and that whole story. And users were prevented from sharing the story. So if you saw the story on something and you tried to retweet it, they wouldn't allow you to retweet it. Well, guess what happened? Just like the lab leak theory and all this other stuff, people had to admit that the 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 story was actually true. After all these people came out, said it wasn't true. After people were getting suspended and not allowed to share it, it actually came out that this was a true story. Uh, this is partially, you know, what led somebody like Elon Musk to, to try to take over Twitter. I mean, it's this issue in general. And so one of the things that Elon Musk did, as we know, he, he took over Twitter was to release internal files to an independent journalist. So on Friday, Elon Musk took a bunch of independent files and just gave them to uh, journalist Matt Taibbi. Now, as the New York Times notes, this set off a firestorm among pundits, media ethicists, and lawmakers in both parties. It also offered a window into the fractured modern uh, landscape of news where a story's reception is often shaped by readers' assumptions about the motivations of both reporters and subjects. I think that that is true. And so the New York Times said this. This is what The Hill uh, had to say. As many of us have long suspected, there were back channels between Twitter and the Biden 2020 presidential campaign and the Democratic National Convention to ban critics or remove negative stories. So one of the things that you saw, Chris, from this, and I haven't looked through the documents myself, I'm going to be honest with you, I've not had time to read through all those, but you did see these conversations between the DNC, you saw conversations between uh, Biden's presidential campaign, basically asking them to handle certain stories or handle certain uh, uh, Twitter users who were putting out these stories. Um, Very problematic. I think, you know, some conservatives probably went too far in saying this was a huge violation of, of, of the First Amendment. Again, in most of these cases, it was not the actual this was before Biden was in office. So this was his campaign, not necessarily using the government to uh, to do any of this. Uh, but I do find it to be problematic. I do think it raises questions as to the role that big tech um, some of these, you know, social media websites, the role that they play in politics and their relationships with certain people in politics and, and how those relationships influence uh, what they do. What did you take from this story, Chris, uh, when you first saw it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't go through and read like in any great detail, uh, you know, the Twitter files. Um but, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that we got to, like, keep it in perspective, right? Like, I think that this is something that was, uh, I would say, wildly inappropriate. Um, I, I think it might be a stretch to say that it would have had a major, major impact on the outcome of the presidential elections. But then you also, you don't know, right? Like that's, And that's, no, that's nobody's judgment to make at the time, right? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's just simply not like the I think the the fact that you had this inappropriate communication between the campaigns and and I mean, the Trump campaign was also communicating with, with Twitter, uh, which may go closer to a First Amendment violation because Trump was the actual president at the time. But the fact that you have political campaigns, politicians uh, sort of working these social media companies um, behind the scenes and influencing what the public gets to see uh, is is really 
not good. Uh, also, in in the 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 reporting, you saw there wasn't just the campaigns; there were like mainstream media outlets uh, working the social media platforms uh, in terms of like how you get this stuff out. Which uh, it, it it just shows again, you know, like I was talking about in the in our very first block, like there is this this collusion, right? Like with all these different industries, because here you have government, you have media, you have political campaigns, uh, you have social media companies, uh, and and they're having these conversations uh, behind closed doors that are dramatically influencing uh, public discourse and literally what information uh, people are allowed to uh, interact with. And so even though I don't think there are First Amendment issues purely First Amendment issues at play here because it's not directly government. I think that you do have sort of American way of life issues here uh, that just scream that we need to do something uh, about how these social media companies that do influence our, our public discourse in significant ways, how they're regulated, what they're allowed to do, and what they have to report to the public. And again, it's, it's, it's gotta be balanced, right? Like it's like I have said about January 6th, right? That's not something that you want to ignore, uh, and not do anything about, right? Like you got to pay attention to it. You got to do something about it. Uh, it's also not something that should be done at the expense of everything else where this thing becomes primary, because I don't think that is like the biggest presidential scandal in the history of the presidency and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people have been, uh, exaggerating a little bit I, I don't think it's good i think people have been exaggerating a little bit about how bad it is and you make a, a good point you have first amendment right violations right that that idea of free speech but then you just have the spirit of free speech in america right so when people say it's a violation of free speech it doesn't necessarily mean a constitutional violation it's a violation of the principle that everybody should be able to enter the public square and be heard right when you have folks who are communicating with certain parties or showing partiality and they basically have a, a, a monopoly almost on uh, uh, certain modes of communication, that can be seen as a violation of the spirit or the principle of free speech in America. And that's something that we should care about. So, again, I think there's more to come within this conversation. They're still going through some of these documents. There were also other journalists who were given information about these documents. Uh, he came out with his response pretty quick. So that means that there's still things that need to be looked at. The thing that we know about this is the sides aren't going to agree. The folks on the left who are maybe have been a part of some of this censoring are not going to turn around and say, yes, we were wrong. We should have never done that. What they're going to do is say, oh, it wasn't that bad. They're trying to make this bigger than it is. We knew that they were going to say that before they even said it. And in fact, there's some tweets where I don't know who it came from, but a bunch of people who might have been involved in this basically tweeted the same thing out um, over and over and over again. And so we can, we can expect. And that's why I tell people when you watch certain cable news shows or you only follow certain you're only getting talking points. You're listening to people that never at any point were going to be objective about a certain issue. And you're taking that and you're taking that information, if you can even call it that, and running with it. You you you. What's the word that we call? You have to have uh, media hygiene. You have to hear different voices and make sure you're listening to people that are actually being objective, because otherwise I can guarantee you some people will never admit fault. 
They will never admit somebody has a has a point. They will never admit that the information that came out against their side was legitimate or significant. And time and time again, when I see Christians, what we respond to, where we get our opinions, it simply reflects people who aren't being intellectually honest. And we have to be a little more discerning than that. And unfortunately, you just don't see it often enough. I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to really be aggressive about protecting this area of our uh, society. I think too many of our institutions right now are suffering a crisis of legitimacy, and that mm. does not bode well for the future. That's it. Well, man, we got to get out of here. We have another episode to record for those who are our uh, patrons on Patreon, those subscribers. But as always, man, we appreciate all of you. Um, but if you have uh, something to give, you can give that on on Patreon. You can hear a little more. Again, if you want to uh, apply to our uh, Christian uh, C- Christian Civic Leadership Academy, you can do that as well, man. But we greatly appreciate you. And Camp, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism or progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and who won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. I say kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.